Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. We are going to get started, <coughs> rejoin our series in the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bibles or you have your phones, if you go to our live page, you can find the scriptures we're going to use there. If there's any that you want to go back to, those will be there all week. We don't change them until Sunday. So if there's a scripture that you hear and you're like, what was that? You can go back, click on our live page and find that. Uh, but we are in Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is towards the back of the Bible, and we're in chapter 9 and continuing on our series. If you remember, for those of you who haven't here, there's some new faces. The book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews, Jews, that were being persecuted because they decided that Jesus was the Messiah. They decided to follow Jesus with their life, which meant they had to practice what Jesus said. They had to explain that he was the Messiah to a bunch of Jews that didn't believe he was the Messiah. And so they were being persecuted. They were being persecuted by their Jewish brethren and they were being persecuted by the Romans. So they were experiencing all kinds of persecution. And so this letter is being written to these Hebrew believers to remind them to consider Jesus. Don't stop considering who Jesus is and what he has said about the world around you. Because when you're in the midst of problems, persecution, suffering, doubt, it's easy to start considering other things and forget about Jesus. It's easy to say, well, you know what, considering all the consequences and everything I'm facing, it's probably just better if I forget about Jesus, if I forget about his church, forget about his people, and maybe I'll just go back to the way things used to be. Because it seems like, I don't know, before I became a Christian, it wasn't that hard. It's like you forget how miserable it was before you were a believer, Right? And so it's like, yeah, it wasn't that bad. So I'll, I'll go back and be Jewish again. I'll go back and practice all the things of the Old Testament that Jesus said I don't have to do anymore because he fulfilled them. And we're going to see that this morning. And these Hebrews were caught in this cultural mess. You ever feel like you're caught in a cultural mess in our culture? Same thing. Now, we're not facing necessarily physical persecution yet in our country like many of the Christians around the world are facing physical persecution for believing that Jesus really is the Messiah. But we face persecution. We face opposition. We are tempted to doubt. We're tempted to stop considering Jesus in all areas of our lives and compartmentalize it and say, well, this is Sunday and this is church day. And then Monday's work day and then Friday's my weekend and then Saturday's my lake day and if I get back for church, great, or I just stay at the lake all the time. Like, we, will you consider Jesus? That's what this book is about. He even says it, if you read there, he says it in the very first verse of chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, if you believe that Jesus has saved you, that he wants a relationship with you, that he's creating a home for you, and he's going to invite you to that someday when you die, then consider Jesus. And then we went through the last several weeks we looked at attention drift, that, our, that we tend to have our attention drift away, right? Halftime's coming. The game's horrible. It's, yeah, Matt's preached too long. We're leaving. So that, like, if you get up and leave, I'll realize like, we're losing. No, I'm just kidding. So, but our attention can drift. And so the author says that in chapter 2, verse 1, that this is a normal occurrence, that it's hard to keep our attention on Christ. He then goes on to say it's sometimes difficult to trust him because we look at the circumstances of our world and wonder if it's worth it. In the midst of that, we can harden our hearts towards him because it's like, well, I don't know if I can trust him. And so when we say that over and over again, we begin to form a wall in our relationship with Jesus just like we would in a relationship with someone else. 
Once our heart is hardened, God has to soften it. And if we allow him to soften it, that's the process of maturity. That's how you mature is going through this process of considering Jesus, trusting him, allowing him to soften your hard heart. That's how you grow to maturity. And then as you're growing into maturity, you have to remember that you have to keep seizing the hope that Jesus offers because you realize that the more mature you become in this world, the less hopeful it is. That it is an empty world. You, you know, it's interesting to me as I look on Facebook, and I have over the last several years, it's interesting because when I came on Facebook centuries ago, anyway, when, when I came on Facebook a long time ago, it was fun to watch children being born of my friends, right? Like, wow, look, they're having, look at what they're doing as a family. Now you're watching all their children go to college, and I'm watching the parents of my friends die and go on. And I'm seeing more of that in my news feed of people that are struggling and families that are hurting. And it makes, it reminds me to seize the hope, which is the author says. And then as we're seizing the hope, Jesus wants us to be reminded that when we're reaching for him to seize him, he says, I will draw near to you. I want to be near to you. I've done everything I can so that I can draw near and we can have a near relationship. And then he says, and that relationship is guaranteed forever and always. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, Mark talked about the idea that there's something better, that as you're going through this process, that the author is walking these Hebrews through because they're struggling and they want to go back to the past. They want to go back to doing the laws of the Old Testament so that they're not persecuted, so that they have kind of a rhythm in life that works, that's just easy. He reminds them that there's something better than what you keep trying to go back to. There's something better that you keep trying to grab onto and that something better is him. And so this morning, I want us to look at this, because this is what chapter 9 is all about. You'll see the word, the Messiah, or Messiah, mentioned over and over again from chapter 9 into chapter 10. Now, for us, the word Messiah, in verse, actually, it's, if you look, um, in 9-11, it says, but the Messiah has appeared. You see, the Jews of their day, of these Christians who were formerly Jewish, they're in a culture that doesn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah who appeared. They're still waiting on a Savior. They're still waiting on someone to deliver them. We go through this about every four years. Every four years, and it starts about two years before the four-year mark, we start having conversations about who will save us. Right? The Republicans will save us. Oh, now the Democrats will save us. We need some independents to save us. We need some guy to rise up and make America great again or to build it back better. And the whole time, Jesus is in heaven saying, it's not going to work. It's not about a man. It's not about those things. It's It's about a Messiah, and that man is not your Messiah. The government is not your Messiah. Do we respect the government? Yeah, because the Bible tells us we're supposed to. We're supposed to pray for them. We're supposed to try to figure out how to live our lives like these Hebrews were, understanding that the life and the world we live in is broken, that this government will not survive. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible presents the fact that when we get to heaven, we don't get to vote. There's a benevolent monarch in heaven, and he extends his grace and his love, and we are going to love to follow him and listen to him because he is good and perfect. I don't get a vote. And so 
Do we have a system that may be the best system that we can find? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But, but if, and if you're really honest, deep down in your heart, and if I'm really honest, this idea of a Messiah is something that our culture just constantly throws at us all the time. You don't think so? Here, I'm, I'm going to play something for you. Ready? Let's see if I can get it to come over my mic. What? What is that the theme to? Everybody knows it. You're like, it's Superman, the Messiah. He's coming to save us, right? Like, like we have created an entire genre of superhero films and everything else, and we spend billions on it. Because we know we need a Messiah. We'll hear music and immediately know what that is. Same with the Marvel movies. You'll hear them, oh, I know that with that. I mean, it's, I mean we, we've created comic books. This is Bizarro going after Superman. I think he's holding on to Lois Lane upside down. But anyway, like we've created entire comic books to, to talk about a Messiah. That we need someone to save us outside of ourselves, someone powerful and bigger than us, who, who's beyond our problems, who's not like us, he's from another world. Do you realize this? The writers of Superman were two Jewish brothers in 1938. They wrote Superman because they're still looking for a Messiah. And they wrote Superman not knowing how much they made it like a Christian (laughs) narrative. If you think about Superman and think about who he was and, and what they portrayed, that it's only been 83 years that we've had this kind of superhero genre. And can I just be honest? Everybody wants to be Superman. Nobody wants to be his earthly dad, the farmer. And we want to promise everybody they can be Superman and you can do great things and wonderful things, but don't, don't be a farmer. That's just, you know, he, he... And God in Scripture uses farming more than any other analogy in the entire Bible. The idea of living a simple and honorable life. The idea of living a life where you raise up people around you and send them out. Jesus didn't come as Superman. He never visited a major Roman city. He didn't go to D.C. and throw out the aliens. That didn't happen. He lived a quiet, simple life in the armpit of the Roman Empire, which was Judea, Jerusalem, i.e. Nazareth, and raised up 12 guys that were nuts, right? Guys that you wouldn't pick or I wouldn't pick. And he, and he kept telling them, leave what you're doing and become farmers for me. Become fishermen of men. And I, can I just tell you, we, we have bought in to what the original writers of Superman wanted us to buy into, that, that we can be this superhero that changes things. And if I accept Jesus, then my life's going to become like a superhero. And no, your life's going to make sense. But you may, like these Hebrews, end up with a lot of suffering because you're living a simple life, believing that God has a better life coming and that this isn't the end. All of our movies, every movie, the romantic comedies, (laughs) the superhero movies, even the 
the crazy psycho thriller Halloween movies, right? All of them are, are about making someone or something our Messiah. Someone will save us from Michael Myers. Someone will save us from ourselves, from the aliens. Someone will save us from our loneliness and bring us a relationship. Someone will save us, and Jesus is saying, hey, hey consider me. The God of the universe is Son who gave his life and consider living a life like that. So let's read Hebrews. This is how it starts out in Hebrews 9 verse 1. It says, now the first covenant, that's the covenant of the Old Testament, also had regulations for ministry in an earthly sanctuary. For the tabernacle, that was the tent that they set up and they traveled with that gave them a process by which to enter and worship God, was set up. And in the first room, which is called the holy place, remember they had the outer chamber that people could come into to worship, and the people surrounded it. And then they had the first area, and then they had a second area. I'm not going to get into the details. He says, where the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves were. He says, behind the second curtain, the tabernacle was called the most holy place. It contained the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered with gold on all sides in which there was a gold jar containing the manna. Manna was in the wilderness. It was the bread that came down from heaven that was miraculously provided. And it said that Aaron's staff, it was a dead staff that budded representing resurrection, and the tables of the covenant, that is the Ten Commandments, were there in that inner sanctuary. He goes on and he says, The cherubim of glory were above it, were above the mercy seat, were above that, overshadowing the mercy seat. That's the Ark of the Covenant. And then the author says this, It's not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. That's my message to you. We could be here all day if I started unpacking everything that the Old Testament was about and how every bit of it points to Jesus. We would be here all day. The entire Old Testament is to try to get us to consider that God has to send us a Messiah. From the chapter, the beginning of Genesis, after Adam and Eve sinned, God says, I am going to bring a seed. I'm going to bring someone through you, Adam, and through you, Eve. I'm going to bring a Messiah. I'm going to bring one that will come and save you. And from Genesis all the way to Revelation, that's the story of the Bible. We need a Savior. And the story of humanity is us constantly trying to save ourselves and chasing someone who says they can save us. It's the story of humanity. He goes on and he says, with these things set up this way, the priests enter the first room repeatedly. In other words, during the year with all the Old Testament sacrifices that were there, they would go in, they would offer the sacrifices that were prescribed in the Old Testament. And they would do it over and over again in line with the seasons. And they would perform their ministry of doing that. But the high priest, there was a high priest that was above all the priests from the line of Aaron, who was um, a Levite. The high priest enters the second room, the Holy of Holies, and he does that only once a year. That's on the Day of Atonement. Once a year he would go in, and it says, And never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear through the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, is what the author of Hebrews is saying, making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. 
In other words, the author's saying all these things, all these things are just a picture. While the first tabernacle's standing, you're going to keep going back to the old way of doing things until that way is taken away from you, and then you'll figure out how to do it the way that God intends. And so in the Old Testament, these sacrifices and the laws were not able to save them. They were supposed to be a reminder, are you ready for this? They couldn't save themselves. Every time the priests would go in, every time the people would give from their their resources, the the bread, the wine, the, the offerings, every time they would give, it was a reminder that God is keeping me alive. I know this doesn't make up for whatever he's done, but he's asked me to give it, so I'm gonna give it. But God, I know that you're gonna come and you're gonna save me. And I'm just in the middle of this mess and I wanna obey you and I wanna walk with you. And it's that constant reminder is what the sacrificial system was. Can I tell you, we have that same reminder in Jesus, only we don't have to practice the sacrificial system. He asks us to practice something different, which we'll see in a moment. He goes on to say, this is a symbol for the present time. The the symbol of the present time is who Jesus is. What happened in the Old Testament is a symbol for us to understand today, during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot protect, look at this, the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed, look at this, until the time of restoration. You see, you never felt better about going in and giving the sacrifices because it was never enough because you'd walk out and as soon as you walked out, as soon as you were done giving the sacrifices, you know what happened? You'd sin again. You'd walk right out and someone would cut you off on your way out of the temple, on your way out of the tabernacle. Some family would cut you off and you'd think, oh, God, get them. Oh, crud, now I gotta go back and sacrifice again. I mean, he's saying that that what Jesus did and what the Messiah's purpose in coming to do, are you ready for this? Was not to deliver them like Superman. It was to give his life for them so that they could all believe that someday Jesus would come on the clouds like Superman. If you remember the, how many of you have seen the first Superman? The very first one with, with okay, some of you. All the young ones are like, what are you talking about? There was a first Superman? Yeah, like 1983 or four, right? At the end of the movie, he's like up, above the clouds, looking over the earth with kind of this mentality of like, I'm the protector of the earth. See, we love that kind of a Messiah. We love a Messiah that's there to protect us and our stuff. We struggle with a Messiah that says, it's not your stuff, it's not your life, and I'm asking you to surrender it to me because I'm gonna bring something better someday. And I'm asking you to be an example to others of what it looks like to give your life, to lay down life for me. And he says, until the time of restoration. So let me give you a kind of a picture of this. I've said this before, but some of you are new. In the Old Testament, everything was pointing forward to a day when a Messiah would come, Jesus. Everything in the New Testament is talking about when that Messiah came, Jesus. And all the prophecies and everything of the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament to the book of Revelation reveals that we are all waiting together for Jesus to return finally to make things right. 
So we're all, the entire Bible is everyone believing that a Messiah will someday come and make everything right. That's what the Bible is about. But the reason they rejected Jesus and the reason these Hebrews are going back and kind of believing, well, maybe Jesus wasn't the Messiah is because Jesus asked them to do something that just seems so stupid which was to give up their rights, give up their life, to quit looking to fill themselves and to believe that it's worth giving your life to people that don't deserve it. Because that's what Jesus did. And he says, all this stuff is only a symbol. The blood was only a symbol. You see, we understand that the first thing you do in first aid is stop the bleeding, right? If you've been trained in first aid, it's you've got to stop the bleeding. First thing, why? Because life is in the blood, the Bible says. The platelets are in the blood. The platelets stop the bleeding. That gives the body the ability to send antibodies and to send what it needs to start the healing process of the body. If you're bleeding out, you have to stop. If you lose too much blood, we've got to give you blood so that possibly your body can save itself. God said that long before we understood blood theory. Long before we ever knew white blood cells and platelets existed in blood, God said, I am going to make you make blood sacrifices so that it reminds you of death. It reminds you that that there's no other way but to give your life as a picture of him. He goes on and he says this, but the Messiah has appeared. So he looks and he says, those were all symbols, but I'm telling you now, Jesus is the picture of all those symbols. He is here. He has appeared. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. He's the high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Remember, they built the first tabernacle made out of skins, animal skins. He entered the most holy place Once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, that's what was done at the Day of Atonement, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah He goes on and he says, How much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse, look at this, our consciousness from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, if you keep trying to do works, if you keep trying to make deals with God, you know what that reveals? It reveals you don't understand who the Messiah is. You don't understand the love he has for you and the sacrifice he made for you that was once, forever, and always for you to be forgiven and loved till the end of your days. You're literally throwing it back in his face. That's why works-based religion is so awful. All the religions of the world are works-based. Some cults of Christianity are works-based. Jesus is grace-based. He said, you cannot earn your way to me because you're not the Messiah who can earn it. You're not Superman. You can't get right with me. The only person that can make you right is me, and the only way I can make you right is through my death so that you don't have to die an eternal death. See, that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get these other Hebrews to see. 
He's trying to get them to see that in the Old Testament, when they would go in and they would offer these sacrifices once a year, that it's bigger than that, that he came to earth to give his life so that we could be right forever with God. He's the ultimate hero. He's the ultimate Messiah. And everybody in the Bible, we love to raise up David as a hero. We love to raise up these men in the scriptures as heroes. And then we find out all of them have got a kryptonite problem. Every one of them. And they can't save us. And the point of that was to point to the fact that there would be one who would come who could save us from our own conscience. Because let's be honest. We are in a mental health crisis in our country and in our world that maybe we've never seen before. And you think, well, yeah, because it's so bad. My, my grandmother buried two children. My grandfather buried them, dug the graves. She buried a set of twins. My grandmother lived through World War I and world, my grandfather. They, they lived through the Great Depression They lived through World War II. They lived through the Spanish flu. Pandemic that killed 50 million. And they were some of the most joy-filled, loving servants I ever knew in my life. How? When they died, they left nothing because there was nothing to leave because they'd given it all away. How? Because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. That's why. They believed that that's what life was about. They believed that it was about giving their lives, not looking to get life. They didn't believe they were superheroes. They just believed they were servants. They believed more like they were sidekicks. (laughs) Not superheroes. And nobody wants to be the sidekick. And to me, when I read this, I just see the picture of what God is trying to tell us. He goes on to say this, Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. The old covenant was to point us to the new covenant. The old way of doing things was was to point us that there is a new way coming. So that those who are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for the redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You could also call a first testimony. When a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will, that's like a will and testament that you would make, is only valid when people die since it's never in force while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. That there's a, there's a sense of there's got to be a death to make a covenant. There's got to be a giving. There's got to be, I surrender myself to the terms of the covenant. I surrender my life to the terms that are agreed upon. That's why we make covenants in marriage. It's why God says the two will become one flesh. The two will become one because they're, they're figuring out how to make a covenant together. And they become one flesh to represent the blood, sacrifice. And I've said this before, but in the Old Testament, 
This is crazy, but in Old Testament marriage, the, the couple would go into the bedroom while the party was happening, and they would have relations, and they would bring out the bed sheet that showed that there was blood on it, and they would celebrate and cheer. I hope we don't do weddings that way, and I hope I don't officiate one. That is awkward. And, right? Like, what are they doing in there? I, I don't want to think about it. I just, give me some more cheese. I, crackers, it's good. Just, because God was serious about people giving themselves to one another because he gave himself to us. He gave himself fully to us. He was hung naked on a cross, exposed to everyone on our behalf so that we don't have to die, so that we don't have to come under that old covenant, so we can have a conscience like Jesse shared in her testimony that's changed, that brings us to tears when we understand what he's done for us and how he's changed us inside here, not the outside. That Jesse said in her testimony, you look around at the outside and like, I don't think it's gotten much better. Matter of fact, I've got new consequences, but it's so worth it. That's what a relationship does, an intimate relationship. And that's what he says. The old covenant is dead because Jesus gave his blood, which was better than the blood of the bulls and the goats and everything else, to establish the new covenant we have. That marriage is over because the person's dead. Jesus didn't just leave the first marriage and be like, I'm going to go try to find some better people because these ones stink. That's not what God did. A matter of fact, think about this. God is still so faithful to his covenants, even though he's completed his covenant, that, oh my goodness, God still has given back Israel their land and they're living there today. They do not deserve that land. They still don't even believe he's the Messiah. They still reject him as the Messiah. And God's like, yeah, but I'm just faithful. Sorry, that's what I am. I'm faithful to my people. I'm faithful to my part of the covenant even when you're not. I'm faithful to do what I said I would do even when you won't. I am faithful, I am faithful, I am the Savior, I am the Messiah, and you can bank on it. And we, the Israelites are living in their land again, which they thought would never happen again. Because God is so faithful. Because he loves us so much, he's trying to give us these pictures that we can be confident in. He goes on, he says this, for whenever every command has been proclaimed by Moses, or when, for, sorry, for when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people, according to the law, God gave them these rules and laws to show them their heart so that they would come to him and give them, give him their heart. He took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people. Okay, picture this. We're killing all these animals, and I'm filling up this bowl, and I'm, we're splashing blood all over the walls. Like, they're going to come into the banneker Monday morning, right? And we normally clean this place, but this Monday they're going to come in, and blood is splattered everywhere. And then I pull out a hyssop branch, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you need some too. And you leave here today covered in blood. And people are like, ooh. And you're like, this was my best shirt. Dang it. Why? Because God is trying to get them to see you should be the one shedding blood. 
but this is a substitute. It's a picture for you. So when they would go into the church, when they would go into the Holy of Holies, when they would go into the temple, there was blood splattered everywhere. That, that's like a thriller horror film out of like Halloween. Right? Because it was a picture that someone gave their life for you. Your life is not your own. Remember that when you leave here and go back out into the world. And when you go back out into the world, people would see you with blood on you and go, where would that blood come from? And you say, well, it's not my blood. It's not another person's blood. It's the blood that God covered us with, that Moses gave us. And so he was saying the law is not perfect. It's got to be covered in blood. The temple's not perfect. It's got to be covered in blood. You're not perfect. It's got to be covered. Something has to cover you. He goes on and he says, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles according to the law. Almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Our sin is so serious that we deserve to die for it. And God said, I'll die in your place. And in the Old Testament, they were supposed to believe that there would be a Messiah that would die in their place. Instead, they changed the narrative of the Messiah to be someone that would come and reign as a king and give them what they wanted. And they missed Jesus. He goes on to say, therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices. In other words, the tabernacle and all those things were copies. They were kind of pictures of what heaven is and what's really going on on Krypton. <laughs> right? He goes on and he says, they're purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves will be purified with better sacrifices than these. For the Messiah did not enter the sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did this not to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly over and over again with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. In other words, he'd keep having to come back and be crucified. He goes on and he says, Don't, this, is what, this is what Jesus told his disciples. He said, if it's about me coming back and saving you all the time to give you the life you want, then Jesus should be coming back and saving us all the time to give us the life we want. He said, but it's deeper than that. I'm asking you to believe that there's a life that you don't even know you want that's going to come someday, and I'm asking you to live and believe in that. I'm asking you to think about that. I'm asking you to see that everything, all these things in your life are just shadows of what's truly going to come one day. Let me, let me give it to you this, this way. What do you think a perfect tree in heaven looks like? A tree. Okay, let's try another one. What do you think a perfect cow in heaven looks like? Good. What do you think a perfect mountain Someday when God makes a new earth in heaven, what is a perfect mountain going to look like? You guys are getting this. This is good. 
We have been trained to think that, that the things around us are going to be so radically transformed different that we're not even going to recognize them. You know that we're going to recognize people in heaven, right? The Bible's clear on that. We're going to recognize who the martyrs were, who the saints were, who the people of faith were. We're going to know who David was and Solomon. You're going to have, yes, a new name, but you're, people are going to know you. The Bible is clear on that. It, these are only shadows and pictures. That's all they are. They're not the, the, and here's the deal with a shadow. Right now the light's in front of me, right? So what's behind me? A shadow. Good, good job, Brian. Thank you. You guys are catching on. These are not hard answers. Okay. A shadow. When, when the Bible was written in the Old Testament, the law was the light. It was that, oh my goodness, this light that's just, and, and what happened is it hit us and it showed a shadow of things. Jesus now is behind us and our shadow is going out into the world. That, that we can see that, oh, there's, Look at my shadow, like we're making finger puppets, you know what I mean? And like the dog's attacking the bunny and he eats him and like we can do that. Like see, I can, like it's beautiful. But now the light's behind. Jesus has already come, he's already shown the light so that we can go out into the world and tell people everything you see, the things you do, your job, your family, all the stuff we see around us, they're just shadows of what's gonna be so great someday. These relationships that you value, oh, they're only shadows of how incredible the relationship with Jesus is going to be and how incredible the relationship with his people are going to be someday. They're just shadows. And yes, we can kind of play with the shadows right now, and it's kind of fun, but someday it's going to be clear. It's exactly why the Old Testament is, and even today we look forward to the day when Christ comes back, when his light will come and transform everything. Look at what Jesus said about the law, about these pictures and these shadows. He said, don't assume, Jesus said, that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Do you read the Old Testament that way? The majority of Christians I know do not read the Old Testament celebrating the fulfillment of Jesus and the fulfillment of the Messiah and worshiping him. They read the Old Testament and they go, how can I apply that to my life so God doesn't get me? Oh, I better do that so God didn't judge me like he did them. No! No! We read the Old Testament and say, wow, that law is really good. I've struggled to do that. Thank you that you can help me. Thank you that you, you purify me. Thank you. These laws are good because they point to you. Thank you. Now, how does this law point to you? How does this law point to how relationships are supposed to work and how the world's supposed to work? How, is, how do these laws point to you? It doesn't mean I have to do them to get in good with God. It doesn't mean I have to do them to get in good with people. I'm already in perfect with God because of what Jesus did. And so I look at the law and I'm like, wow, this is so cool. Look at how forgiving God is, how patient he is. Look at what he's done. Look at how messed up these people are and God still loved them. There's hope for me. There's hope for my conscience. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get these people to see. But because it's hard, they're trying to go back to works. They're trying to go back to like earn something from God and they're miserable. Don't do it, he says. 
He says, I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of the letter will pass from the law until all these things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You want to be a superhero? Allow God to change your heart. Allow him to work through you to do what he asks you to do, which is to love him and love people. The first four commandments of the, old, of, the, of the Ten Commandments are how to love God. The next six commandments are how to love people. Love God, love people, Jesus said. That's the ultimate great commandment. In Luke, Jesus goes on to say this. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. This is after Jesus um, or when he was with his disciples, he said that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything has to be fulfilled. I can't leave one part out because I have to end the first covenant, the first marriage. I have to die for the first marriage so that I can start a second one. I don't just get to choose and keep choosing who I want to marry and have five marriages. No. He goes on and he says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. They couldn't understand. Listen, you may have a hard time understanding the scriptures. You want to know why? Because you won't allow God to open your mind. You're so closed-minded. You're hard-hearted. All those things we read. God's like, I want to come into you. I want to open your mind. I want to open up myself to you. I want to show you who I am. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. That's our message. Our message is not you can save yourself if you just do enough. It's you can't save yourself so you should repent. And repentance means this. That's the wrong direction. Trying to save myself, trying to do it all myself doesn't work. So I'm just going to turn to Jesus and consider him and give myself to him. That's repentance. I surrender. I'm yours. Do what you want. I got no future without you. And then when we start to turn and go the other way, isn't it amazing that Jesus like taps on the shoulder and is like, no, 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 come on. I'm patient with you, but you come on. And then we turn back again. <laughs> You're right. That's not the right way. I turn back to you, Jesus says. He goes on in Hebrews 9, he says, But now the Messiah has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Somebody had to pay the price. Somebody had to pay the death sentence that you deserve and I deserve. Our problem is, you ready for this? I don't believe I deserve to die. I haven't done anything that bad. I'm a pretty good person. You're not a good person. I'm not a good person. I am selfish to the core. You don't believe me? Spend a day with my kids and my wife. They'll tell you all the ways that I struggle with selfishness. They will lay it out for you, and they have full permission to do so. I desperately need a Messiah. And I'm not him. And you're not him. He goes on and he says, and it's just... As it appointed for people to die once, and after this judgment, so also Messiah, having offered himself once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin anymore, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Don't you love to wait? Isn't it interesting that in all the superhero movies, that's like the biggest complaint, where were you? 
You could have changed this. The first Superman movie, if you remember, Lois Lane dies. She gets buried in a mudslide or a dirt slide and she eats dirt and dies and Superman's trying to stop a nuclear missile, so he has to go stop the missile. He has to make the choice of, like, do I save the people or save Lois? And he's in love with Lois, so I'm going to save Lois, right? Or, I'm gonna, or, or he says, I'm going to save the people. And then he spins around the world, makes the world turn backwards, which is supposed to make time go backwards. Like, so he does that, and then he figures out a way to just make it all work, right? Like, kind of, sort of. That's what we expect of God. Instead, God says, no, I'm asking you to give your life. I'm asking you to wait on me and to believe that when I don't show up, I'm still faithful. I just have chosen not to show up. I'm serving somewhere else. There's something I'm doing in your life, and you can wait. And we love to wait, don't we? It's a great, but you want to you frustrate a child more than anything? Tell them to wait. You want to frustrate yourself for the next two hours more than anything? Tell a child to wait. Is time yet, Dad? How about now? Are we ready yet? Is it time? What about now? In an hour? Has it been an hour? Because I can't tell time. I'm only five. Has it been an hour? No, it's been 30 seconds. Well, how many 30 seconds is an hour? A lot. Quit asking. But see, when you're confident in the relationship and you're confident that your God will come through or that the person in that relationship will come through for you, you know what you do? Okay. I know I can trust you. You'll bring it when it's time. I trust you. He goes on and he says this. Since the law has only a shadow, we talked about that, of the good things to come, and not the actual form of these realities, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after work. All it does is remind you how sinful you are all the time. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers once purified would no longer have any consciousness of sin? In other words, it was about I keep offering myself and I feel better. Then once you've offered, you would feel better. But instead you don't. You just feel bad and think I have to offer more. He goes on and he says, but in the sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's a constant reminder. Let me ask you, when you sin, when you say, I'm going to change my diet, I'm going to change my time, I'm going to change how I do things, and then you keep doing it, how does that make you feel? Better? More forgiven? More wonderful? No, you feel miserable. That's the point. So that we throw ourselves to the one who will change us from the inside out, Jesus. The Messiah, he says, and will take away our sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, you did not want sacrifices and offerings. Right here, the writer of Hebrews is quoting David from Psalm 40. Go back and read it. Psalm 40 is one of the most beautiful psalms of the Old Testament. The Jews, the Hebrews would sing this. This is like an amazing grace of the Old Testament psalm. These are songs. Everybody would know this song. So when this author starts to speak this song, everybody's singing the song in their head. And he says, he said, you did not want sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and in sin offerings. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the volume of the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. See, it's about a surrender of the will. It's not about a deal we make. And that's much harder than just making a deal with God. I'd much rather just make a deal than have to give myself fully to another person. 
Give myself fully to this church. Just, let's just make a deal. You pay me, I do these certain things, and then we're good, right? Don't call me after 6 o'clock. I'm off work. See, we want to make deals, and God's like, there is no deal. The only deal is me, the Messiah, he says. So what does this mean for us as you read through this? And he says above, you did not want or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. Jesus said that, and he takes away the first covenant to establish the second one. He gives his life to the first. You ready for this? He gave his life to the first bride he had who was a horrible bride. Worst woman you could be married to. Have you read the Old Testament about the Israelites and how awful they were to God? Literally would sacrifice their own children to please another God. Constantly committing adultery with other gods. Constantly looking to make peace treaties with people instead of standing for what was right and suffering the consequences. God's people were a disaster and God went all the way and gave his life completely and fully for them. That should give you some confidence that if you believe in him, he'll give his life all the way to the end for you. He won't quit on you. Because that's, he's trying to prove to you and the world around us that he is who he says he is. And the way that he does that is that he does God's will all the way to the end, not just when it's convenient and when it works out well. And the writer of Hebrews is telling these Hebrews, don't just do God's will so you don't get persecuted. Don't do God's will just so that it works out well for you in this life. Give yourself fully and lay down your life for the church, for this new covenant, for what Jesus has done. Give yourself fully to it. Don't go back. He goes on and says this in Romans 12. This is how Paul describes the new covenant. In Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of of God. It doesn't say the law of God. It doesn't say by the judgment of God. It doesn't say by the holiness and the righteousness of God. Paul says, by the mercy that God has on you, by the mercy that you see he's had on his people, by the mercies that God offers in a relationship when we deserve to be smacked upside the head and he offers us his mercy, I urge you to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Who did that first? Jesus. Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he didn't already do, and he's not asking us to do anything for people that he didn't already do. He is saying, I urge you to present the only thing you have, your body. That's the only thing you have is your body and your will. I am asking you to present this to me as a living sacrifice. You know the problem with a living sacrifice? It can crawl off the altar. Ouch, I'm out of here. Jesus was the son of God who could have called angels down from heaven to destroy all of us. And he hung on that cross until he finally died and shed every bit of blood he was to shed so that you and I could have a pathway to get to his father and a relationship with his family. Wow. Wow. And Paul says, you really want to be someone that worships? Don't just do this on Sunday morning and dance around and scream out. Live your life surrendered to him. Do not be conformed to this age. 
That's what the Hebrews were doing. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's a process that takes time so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. See, we have a will that we want God to do. And most of the time, the will we want God to do isn't good, pleasing, or perfect. It's us telling him, hey, we got a relationship, so you give me what I want. And you know what's great? Sometimes God will give us exactly what we want. And he'll go, how's that feel? <laughs> it's awful. Would you like to surrender that now? Start over? And I can give you what I want? Okay. All you have to offer is yourself. And you know the beauty of this? You offer yourself once. Just like Jesus offered himself once for the forgiveness. One time you come before God and you say, I'm done. I surrender. I don't have to keep going to the altar over and over again. I don't have to try to prove my salvation. I just come to you and I surrender myself to you. And if I believe that, then you'll come in. You'll start to change me. Then I get around your people who will write letters like Hebrews to me. They'll read letters like Hebrews to me to help me walk with you and surrender to you. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. And that's the exact process that he wants us to live in. He goes on to say this in Hebrews 10, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time. You ever get tired of that? You ever get tired of listening to work and I go to church and it's just I'm not changing? I try to do all these rules and I just feel miserable. Like this whole Jesus thing's not working for me. Because you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Surrender your heart. If he has your heart, he'll get your works. If you're just giving him your works, he may never get your heart. He goes on and he says, But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Remember, the priests were not allowed to sit down the entire day of the Sabbath. They were not to sit. They had to stand and minister and walk around and do all the work. You could not sit until the sun went down. Jesus did his work, and he's sitting right now. <laughs> Done. Finished. He goes on, he says, he is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For, one, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. In other words, the only reason Jesus is waiting, are you ready for this? Is because he told us that he even loves his enemies, and he desires that none would perish. And so he is waiting, waiting, waiting for the last people to come to know him until finally no one else will, and then he will come back. And it's our jobs to be the ones that go and warn people that he's coming, and there's still time, and he still can save you. That's our job. He goes on and says this in Matthew. Jesus says, but you asked... Or, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, that's Peter the apostle, answered, you are the Messiah. You're Superman. <laughs> the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you're blessed. You are happy. That's what the word blessed means. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Man, what a high moment for Peter. I actually got something right when Peter was constantly getting it wrong. Right? Constantly was saying stupid things and Jesus had to correct him all the time. And he's like, I got it right. Yes. And then a few verses later, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter, oh, Peter, 
Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. You ever done this with God? You ever taken God aside and rebuked him? How dare you, God, take this from me? How dare you not do this? Why aren't you doing this, God? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Great part is, Peter's still in heaven and he did this. So I'm really grateful because I do this and I think, thankfully, Jesus, because he's the Messiah and has saved me, it's not about my works. He's patient with me and he's like, mm. look at Jesus' response. This was not very kind. Jesus' response to Peter understanding he was the Messiah, but Peter not liking the Messiah's plan, oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you, Peter says, But he turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. Publicly in front of everyone. You are not, you are an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Isn't that the trap we all fall into? I fall into that I start thinking about my concerns and my friend's concerns and the concerns around me. And I don't think about what's God's ultimate concern. His ultimate concern is for the eternal souls of people. And while I look around me, that's fine. I can serve and do things. But ultimately, it doesn't matter how many times I feed the homeless. If they die tomorrow and don't know Jesus, they will be separated from him forever. That's my religion. I can't get around that. That's my message of the Bible. It doesn't mean I don't feed the homeless. It doesn't mean we don't help people. But I've got to do it with a mentality of, God, this is just temporary. This bread I'm giving them isn't going to last them. I need to look at them and say, this isn't going to fill you. Because that's what Jesus did all the time to people. He looked at them and said, yeah, here's some bread, but it isn't going to be enough. Here's some water, but it isn't going to fill you. He constantly brought them back to this. And whenever they wanted to twist it and make him on their will, he looked at them and said, nope. And I tell you no because I love you, Peter. I love you. Don't have that as your focus. Have me as the focus. So as we wrap up, Hebrews 10, 15 says, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this Messiah. Testifies to us how all this makes sense. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. Look at this, look. I will put my laws not on scrolls, not on stone tablets. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He adds, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. How? Because every day I remember my sins and lawless acts. How can he... Not remember when I'm plagued with it every day. Because that is the Messiah that he is. And he says, now there is forgiveness of these. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. There is nothing you can do to be saved. Except to say, like these Hebrews needed to be reminded and consider that Jesus really is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. Let me ask you this morning, have you trusted Jesus as your Messiah? Are you looking for something else to save you, a relationship, an education, an occupation, money, health? Are you looking for something, something that you can cling to? I'm telling you, all of that will fail you. 
And Jesus says, I will never forsake you. I will forgive you. I will love you because I am the Messiah and I will come back and get you. And I will change you from the inside out and I will go on the process of helping to change your heart and I'm gonna write the laws that you're scared to death of. When you read the Bible and say, how could I do that? I don't know what to understand. I'm gonna write those things on your heart so there is just joy in understanding the law. So that like my grandparents, even though they buried children, even though they had a hard life, they could remember that that's what life is. And we're not of this world. There's a world coming, and so I can have hope, and I can trust in him, and I can teach others, like my grandson, Matthew, to trust in him. And I can laugh and smile when my hip's been replaced and I'm walking with a cane, and as my grandma used to do, she could take that cane and goose you right when she walks by and just laugh her head off. Because she loved the Lord. She knew that this is what life is. She wasn't looking to be a superhero. She was just looking to serve, to be a servant and to love her Messiah. Can I ask you, is that what you're looking for? Are you going to commit yourself like Jesus did to his people? Have you committed yourself to a church the way Jesus gave his life for like over and over again and now forever for his people? That's the God that is our Messiah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you that this is a message that resonates for centuries because throughout history, everybody's looking for that Savior. They're looking for that Messiah, that relationship that will, that will make everything be better, that'll make the loneliness, the frustrations, the hardness go away. And I thank you that you came and you told Peter that, yes, Peter, I am the Messiah, but don't expect that they're going to treat you any differently than they treated me. And they're going to crucify me, but I'm telling you, there's a resurrection. And so, Father, if there's anyone here who's not surrendered to you and made you literally the hero of their life, I pray they would do it this morning. Once and for all, if they've been playing games like Jesse talked about, if I thought I was a Christian, I pray that the, this morning would be, they finally just put the marker in and they repent. And it's not about them doing a work of repentance. It's just them acknowledging they can't save themselves and surrendering themselves to you. I pray they would do that today. And Lord, for those of us who know you as Messiah, like these Hebrew Christians would have, I pray that we would remember these words that this writer of Hebrews wanted the people to remember. Don't go back. Don't go back to the old way. Don't go back to the old way of doing things. Don't see the Old Testament as a bunch of rules and regulations. See it for the beauty of the revelation of the Messiah that loves us. That's the way we're supposed to see it. That's the life we live. And that's what we're supposed to go out from here and use our life to show people the light that's changed us and the shadow that falls upon them. That He wants a relationship with them. And so help us to do that. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's doubting, like Jesse talked about again in her testimony, that, that you love them, that they couldn't be forgiven, that you're done with them, I pray they would not believe those lies because the author of Hebrews was trying to convince these people to not believe those lies. We thank you and we praise you. And I pray that these prayers you would take and I pray these prayers would change us in your name. Amen.